Hello everybody, we're back. <laughs> We've been away for so, so long now with a Halloween special. I'm Kat Ellinger and I'm here with my wonderful co-pilot, Heather Drain. Hello, hello. It is so good to be back with you guys. Hopefully absence has made your heart grow fonder. And we have got the specialist of treat. No tricks here tonight. We've got the ultimate treat for you, which is us celebrating the wonderful, the only, Lamberto Bava. Woo! We can't quite top the fertility right that we did to Tom Atkins last Halloween. But well, I don't think we'll ever be able to top that. We had a lot of complaints after the episode of women randomly becoming pregnant, <laughs> um, men running from the streets <laughs> with their clothes shredded because just the insane... The, the power, the libidinous power of Tom Atkins is unlocked. <laughs> so this will be a little safer. You won't start randomly ovulating or anything listening to this. But um, but maybe oh, you I don't will. know. We've got some more geastic scenes to talk about, though. So we, we thought we, we would just have to build a temple to a filmmaker this year rather than a hormone with a moustache. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which is also going to be the name of our new Hell's Bells novel, Hormone <laughs> <Yeah>. with the <a> Mustache. <laughs> now, the reason we chose Lamberto is very, very, very early on this year, like just as the pandemic kicked off, Heather and I record, and it still hasn't been announced, and it's burning a hole in my fucking mouth, but Heather and I did a commentary on a related Lamberto film, and it was just as lockdown had happened here in the, in the UK. And I was suffering from what I think now might have been COVID, but I'm still not sure. So I was in the wars. Heather was just really stressed out about her job in the media because she was still having to go out to work. And, you know, it was just like, well, as everybody suffered, it was just like a really crazy time. And um, as we were preparing for this project... We went on this massive Lamberto marathon, like revisiting just everything. And it became like this balm, like this spiritual healing process of just watching all the Lambertos. And no matter what was happening outside, it just it was just provided this like stable. I think because a lot of those films are from the 80s, it's like coming back home and feeling secure and it was just so wonderful. And so we said at the time, we're going to have to do an episode on this for House Bows. We're going to have to pick some Lamberto films and we're going to have to do an episode because, you know, it's just so magic and I think really underappreciated as well in that whole Italian sphere of horror. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that was, it was really like an oasis for us to travel to and, you know, and, and just kind of revel in such a talented, but also such an eclectic filmmaker. And, you know, that was something that just really struck out to us because so many people just automatically do the obvious and compare him to his father, Mario Bava. And of course, I think we all know, you know, who Mario Bava is listening to this, but, um, and, you know, of course, Mario is fantastic, but Lamberto is his own man. And he is his own director and, you know, just his body of work 
I think is it was so rewarding. Like it, I mean, we're, we're natural researchers and love researching, but sometimes researching on certain subjects can get a little tedious. With this project, it was the complete opposite. No, it was wonderful, and I think I share your views in. I mean, I know loads of people love demons, for example, and they love macabre, which we'll be talking about today. We've picked macabre, dinner with the vampire, and demons five, or the the uh, mask of the demon, as our films today. And I know a lot of people do love Lamberto, and they love macabre, and they love demons which is, you know, the latter is, like, considered one of the best Italian horror films of the 80s. But outside of that, you often get this, I guess, I wouldn't want to say disparaging or derogatory. I don't think it goes that far. But there's always that comparison that he wasn't the master that his father was and so on and so forth. And, of course, Lamberto got his start working with his dad and worked with him for many years before he started making his own films. But he was working in a very at a very different time in a very different industry. And as we go through this podcast, we'll see, it, it, you know, it was a difficult time for the Italian film industry in general, especially in genre. And despite that, he managed to rack up a, a fair amount of credits in genre and he managed to keep going and made some just amazing fun they're just they're just made in a completely different spirit for a completely different audience you know demons is like the horror film made for the mtv generation it's got heavy metal it's fast paced it's made for that generation you know if, if lamberto had been making his own films 20 years before who's to say what they would have looked like but when it comes to tapping into a certain era I think he was absolutely brilliant at doing what he did. And so to to use those comparisons is so unfair, I think, because you can't. It's like comparing chalk and cheese. They were working on entirely different subgenres, entirely different subjects in entirely different points in the Italian film industry. So I just think there's no point making those comparisons. And I guess because those comparisons are ultimately made. Lamberto always stands in Mario's shadow to a certain extent, which I really don't think is fair. I just don't think it's fair. It's extremely unfair. And even like with demons, because sometimes I'll see people be like, oh, well, you know, a lot of that's Dario because Ardento, you know, produced the film. And I mean, obviously we all love Dario Argento too, but it's, again, it's kind of just another thing of like trying to sell Lamberto a little short and, um, which is a fallacy, especially because like the coolest to me, one of the coolest things that I found as we visited and in some cases revisited um, a lot of the titles in his filmography, um, each film is different, but it's all Lamberto. Like he really does have like that, that thumbprint of auteur and nothing is ever boring. And, you know, to me, I've always feel like the worst crime any filmmaker could be is boring. You know, if it's boring, you'll forget it. It doesn't elicit anything out of you. And with Baba's work, it's just, you know, just so joyous and so distinctive, especially because like, you know, when people think of 80s horror, 
um, there's a lot of tropes and a lot of things come to mind and, you know, a lesser filmmakers stuff will kind of go in the, the weeds a little bit and not be as remembered where with Bava's everything just shines, you know, whether it's dealing with killers and, you know, or the supernatural, um, his just, his hand is so adept at it. And, uh, and I think he was just so good at the fantasy elements, which we'll obviously talk about that were predominant in 80s especially 80s italian genre he was just so good at that real fantasy sort of horror which is horror the horror that i really love you know so when you get to something like demons five for example it's a flat out fantasy horror and i just think he had that imagination but always with a sense of fun as well i think that's one thing you know, when everything was really, well, it's still really stressful, but we're kind of used to being stressed now, you know, whereas at the time it was like entirely new. It was just like, what the hell is happening? And just that sense of fun and love and just how fucking 80s everything is as well. It just, you know, it became pure comfort food. And I think the thing about Lamberto is because he comes out of genre as a generation of filmmakers who grew up on genre. And this seems to be a subject I'm returning to a lot recently, and I don't know why, it's just some weird synergy. But, you know, you had the same thing with someone like Joe Dante in America, for example. It's like a second generation of filmmakers who grew up watching and consuming horror and then came to it as fans. And you can obviously see especially in a film like Demons, but then that carries on through to something like Dinner with the Vampire, that there is so much fucking love for the genre. It's not just somebody purely making a genre film because that is commercially expected, for example. It, it's somebody making a genre film who also understands and loves the genre. And so, you know, I think that is the special element that his films have is this real sense of love this real you know because dinner with the vampire is almost like a satire it's it's very it's very meta in a way but you never get the sense that he is looking down on the genre you know you, you get a sense that any jokes that come up they're 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 in jokes they're winks you know mm -hmm. to to like-minded souls and i just yeah, I think that's why I just love Lamberto Bava and just the sheer nuttiness of a lot of his work as well. <laughs> it's just never standard, ever. No, no, that's the thing. He, it's, he has such a beautiful heartbeat for horror. And every, I think you just nailed it. Like everything, there's a fun to it and there's a passion. And just, and sometimes it's just even the little, the most like small details, like just how a certain shot is framed. There's just always something going on. There's always something very turned on about what he's doing and what he's creating. And, um, and you know, I think speaking of turn-ons, do you, do you think, are we ready to, to launch into his... Uh, oh, absolutely. His <laughs> we'll be spoiling the hell out of these. But, you know, if you haven't seen them, you should really go and see them immediately. But we will be going straight into plot details. But even if you haven't seen the films, I, I really don't think it makes any difference whether you know ahead of time. You know, they're not that sort of films. And, and you know, we really just want to 
go over the sales points. I think it's sales <laughs> points. Also, also the planet's literally on fire right now. So getting mad about spo- uh, spoiling films that are like 40, 30 yeah. years old, it's, <laughs> you'll be fine. But yeah, but definitely seek everything out. And, um, and to be honest, like I had read the big reveal about Macabre's uh, amazing twist ending years before I saw it. And it did not ruin the film for me at all. Like great filmmaking is great filmmaking. Well, I think and, when uh, Arrow put it out on Blu-ray, it's got the fucking twist on the cover. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> so don't get mad at us. <laughs> get, get, but, uh, oh my God. This is 1980, and you want to talk about just starting off with your feet into the fire. Holy hell. Mm. Macabre is such a powerhouse. Um, Sleazy in a good way. Like, there is, like, just a languidness. There's, like, a languid, like, because it's set in New Orleans, and you can almost, the film feels kind of swampy. Like, everything feels very humid. But in a good way. Oh, it's beautiful. Obviously, most people aware of my work will know I'm obsessed with the Gothic. I'm obsessed with Gothic perversion. I absolutely love Gothic melodrama. And Macabre, far from being a sort of staple... You know, this is 1980. It's right in the height of the golden era of slashers. You know, it's, it's right in that territory. And Lamberto Bava doesn't make something like that. What he makes is a very, very perverse gothic melodrama with horrific, horrific notes to it. Well, not even notes, trumpets. <laughs> Loud, screaming, perverse gothic trumpets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's it's perfect. That is a perfect descriptor. And um, the cast of characters, and it's, I'm so glad you mentioned it because it is a gothic melodrama because when you think slashers, you think high body counts. And there really is not one at all. There's no. a little bit of a body count here, but that's not the point. And, um, you know, we're introduced to our heroine of sorts, Jane. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, played uh, by the amazing Bernice. Uh, is it Steggers or Steigers? Steigers, I think. Is it Steigers? Uh, yeah, Bernice Steigers. He's, he's English, but dubbed... I believe in this in a in a everyone's dubbed in a wonderful New Orleans accents, which is can I just say I because I've never been to America, I've always had this weird. Fa- I'm sure we've discussed this before because you're from the South. I'm not saying everywhere is the South. <laughs> I know it's a big place. Thank God. <laughs> but I've always had this strange. I I I I don't know if I should call it fetish. Maybe it's not a fetish. An affinity, uh, a curiosity about the American South. I think just because I, you know, when I read things like uh, Flannery O'Connor, for example. Oh, yes. Blood was like a very, very influential book on my formative years. Um, I'd sort of had this like real fascination for the South, but, but New Orleans it's it's like this obsession but yet sadly i've never been there but i just find the whole idea of the place and the mysticism and the the french aspects and the weird architect just everything 
So set any film in New Orleans and guaranteed I'll probably think it's like a 90% anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just fascinated with it. And I don't know why in Southern accents and just the whole thing. I'm from like the equivalent of the American South, though, the Southwest in England. I'm from farmer country and we're generally considered like the Hicks of England. So I don't know if it's like a weird spiritual cousin thing as well. But <laughs> um, I've always no, I've always had a, a similar sort of fascination for um, New Orleans too, and I sadly haven't. I still haven't been, which is which is crazy. But um, what's hey, fast- we need to crowdfund like a house pal house bells New Orleans, you know, road show. <laughs> oh my god, that would be amazing. That would oh, so yeah, our our lovely listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll record it, we'll video it, we'll do the whole shebang-a-bang. Uh, obviously, once COVID gets under control, so knock on wood. But um, the, the the strange thing about New Orleans, because I always grew up thinking that everybody in New Orleans had those kind of great, because accents, obviously, like in any country, in any region of a, of a country, accents can kind of shift and change depending on what region, like a Southern accent like I have a little bit of one, but not nearly as much as say somebody who's like from Alabama or, you know, but even an Alabama accent's different than a Mississippi, et cetera. But, um, but I always thought like people in New Orleans would have these great kind of like almost Cajun lush Southern accents. And I became really good friends with the guy who was born and raised in NOLA. And they like actual people from New Orleans sound like they're from New York. They do not sound Southern at all. Oh, it's, you it's weird. My I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but the rest of the state, you'll you'll have it. It's just like this one, isn't it? It's so strange. I don't That's know if it's so like sad. Oh, don't be sad. Don't be sad. They're still amazing. <laughs> I just food. love the whole weird sort of intersection of like religion and voodoo and old mysticism and this just everything about it the whole even the swamp thing you know i just find the swamp thing just (laughs) i love swamp thing (laughs) oh my god it's just so so brilliant and so the fact that i mean this doesn't have to be set there but it is just makes it like i don't know it if if it could possibly get any better on storyline alone, but just the fact it's set there, it just it's like the cherry on the top of this wonderful gothic grotesque cake because you know Barva does have little moments where he shows you some of the some of the nightlife and stuff, and it's just oh, it just gives the film I think like the Beyond I think like Lucio Fulci's Beyond, which is probably my favourite Fulci film. Mm, again because it's set in new orleans (laughs) (laughs) well and especially because you know like with the south and especially when you have like southern gothic and it's kind of also like some you know you think like the old tennessee williams plays where everybody's fanning themselves and the the heat's oppressive and it's almost like everything that you're supposed to repress in a nice society is just starting to bubble up to the surface more and more because of the heat and so it's such a perfect location for horror and especially perverse sort of sexual horror too it just makes everything just a little more rich it, it is ultimately like the best gumbo right <laughs> and this is total seven gothic you know apart from the 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 more horrific outright horrific elements you know the rest of it the family melodrama 
it's pure Tennessee Williams. It's it's just these families that are rotten and corrupt and they hate each other and everyone's fucked up and selfish. And I just think it's an absolute masterpiece for that because that's not something you generally see a lot in Italian horror, you know, the beyond side. But this one, it really does go for that whole Williams territory with, you know, because its main focus is on this family, including Jane Baker, who's the mother. (laughs) And I laugh because I just think of Bernice Steiger's facial expressions in this film are the most sublime thing ever, as the irritated woman, mother, a wife, and then ex-wife who just wants to get fucking laid by Fred, the lover. Oh, my God. She, this is such a bravura performance because she she literally has to you know she's the prim mother and I, I this is set up because basically the film starts and she's supposed to take her her little kids to the movies and she makes up an excuse and her oldest lucy and lucy would you guess at like say 11 12 yeah and, yeah um played by veronica zenny is and by the way this kid is such a shitter she is such <laughs> a great fantastic shitter um but she basically makes up excuse to not spend time with her kids so she could go and run off to this like amazing apartment that she's renting in this old beautiful house like who would want to live in that house oh it's like, gorgeous oh it's, it's absolutely so gorgeous, gorgeous. Uh, but she has this like beautiful, very ornate, sort of exotic apartment that's specifically just so she could go off and have like, you know, passionate love making with Fred while her, you know, while her her oldest little shitter kid ends up, you know, pretty much being the cause of her little brother's demise. <laughs> <laughs> well, she leaves him with the gardener. She's just like the, the guy mowing the lawn. Oh, just watch the kids, and she goes off all smugly. And I just love the setup <laughs> to this. And then you've got Veronica Zinni, who I can't believe just made one film because she is one hell of a talent. She is the smuggiest, horriblest, evilest little chick kid. He gets kind of bored, goes in, starts smoking her mother's cigarettes and then decides to drown her brother in the bath. He's like a toddler. So somebody calls Jane at the apartment and... And she's rushing to get back home with Fred driving the car. Uh, and they crash and he's beheaded. <laughs> so, so the film starts with, oh. like, his legs and a big, like, metal pole over it. And her screaming and, like, blood everywhere. Oh, my God. It is such it is such an amazing scene. I, I think the only thing that could rival it is the similar decapitation scene in Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. But this one... Yeah, this is like within like what the first ten minutes. So the first minutes you have you have a toddler being murdered, uh, an eleven <laughs> year old great. smoking, uh, love passionate heavy breathing love making and decapitation. And you also get the beautiful Stanko <gasps> Molnar, yes, as blind Robert naked in the bath as well because he him and his mother live in the downstairs apartment. And when Benice gets to a, a flat, the mother's like, oh, come in here. And, and, the, and the blind guy's sat in the bath. And he's like, I'm not a child. <laughs> and I was just like, come in here and look at my naked son. 
<laughs> I mean, it it really does just sort of not leave you any room to breathe in those first 10 minutes. You're just like, what? Remember the first time I ever saw this, just like, what is going on here? This film is just so interesting and strange. Oh, it's, well, and, 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 and it's one of those films where, like, just when you think it can't get any more bent, like something, you know, it just, something even more crazy happens because it's like, we basically get to see, we see her return uh, a few months and she's now living in the apartment and Robert's now alone, his mother's deceased and showing that she's clearly not of her right mind, like this lovely man, the lovely Stanko Molnar and his character is so sweet. You know, he's this amazing, like he's blind, but repairs instruments. Like he has this job of repairing all these like old musical instruments and he's like so such a gentleman to her and she's just like constantly rebuffing him for her and walking around in a negligee <laughs> chilling <laughs> bottles of champagne and stuff because she <laughs> with her altar she has this fold folded up altar to fred yeah with his which the thing i love about that fucking altar it's amazing but it's got like his photo on on it and it's sort of it's sort of insinuated that he's like a Vietnam vet or something. So it's like a dog tag and a peace sign, a little thing. So it's like, <laughs> but then his visa card is on it and he's like, just his razors. <laughs> it's like razor place. So it's got like his visa card stuck on the top. And it and it just looks so shitty and weird. It looks like a it looks like a kid's like half ass science project. It like really it, does. It's like this weird like science fair altar <laughs> that folds up. So she's obviously got enough sort of sanity cooking around to being like, this is pretty bananas. I probably don't need to let company see this. <laughs> it's and uh oh my gosh yeah but she kind of knows that people shouldn't see i mean she doesn't have to worry about robert obviously because he's blind but he he hears her in her apartment sort of loud moaning and he's and talking to somebody and he starts to think you know what's going on up there is she got a man up there and he but he's not as stupid as she thinks he is which is one of the things that i love about it because he actually even though he can't see figures out what's going on and i mean this is the bulk of the film really which doesn't sound that interesting until you watch it because for most of the film it is jane basically disappearing to her room and and moaning and going oh Fred, Fred, you know, and <laughs> Robert creeping around and becoming more and more suspicious. Then Veronica Zinni as Lucy comes back on the scene and she's a nosy little shit. Like, I love the fact she's so fucking defiant that one of the first things she does, knowing her mother's frail state of mental health, is she tricks her way into the flat when her mother's not there and she puts a photograph of the fucking brother that she murdered in the apartment. <laughs> I, as if to say fuck you mother it's like it's like this kid this kid like lucy saw the bad seed and said hold my beer <laughs> she really did yes oh she's such a little shit and even even when she's just doing because the thing about this film it's so brilliant is the way bava it's even mind-blowing it's especially mind-blowing to think this was his first film you know i mean obviously he wasn't new to film but this was his first like you know directorial debut and the tension 
Because, like, when she, even when the, she first goes to the house and she's, like, sneaking around Robert's room, I instantly was like, oh, God, this poor man. Like, he is so nice. He is lovely. He's got this crazy woman <laughs> who keeps forgetting. Like, she, like, at one point he sets up a dinner and she forgets because she's oh, out buying little lingerie. Oh, candlelight dinner. And yes. he's there with his little sad face. And she's like, oh, I forgot, but you can make me a drink. And so, <laughs> and bring it upstairs. She just totally. But there's also this really weird scene in it where she's helping him make his bed, and he just grabs her tit, which is a nice little touch. It's <laughs> like, what's that about? And then he kind of does this shocked face, like, oops. <laughs> I wanted it's, to talk it... about the music thing because music oh. seems to come up in a lot of Barber's films. I mean, you've got Blade in the Dark. For example, which is about a, a composer. That's the the Jallo that he made originally for television. You've yeah. got Demons is like very music orientated as well. So you know it's all about the sound, like the heavy metal soundtrack in that. And it, it's and and you've also got a character in that. Is she? Is she in an orchestra or is she studying music? She's I a music student. Yeah, She's a music student and, you know, I'm not sure what that's about. It seems to be something that crops up in some of his films. Yes, well, that's that's kind of the... I've noticed it too. There's always like a theme in a lot of Lombardo's work where there's either like a meta reference to the arts. Like, obviously, like with Demons, you have the, you know, the monsters coming out of the movie you know, uh, in Blade in the Dark, the composer is a horror film composer. Like, he's scoring a horror movie that ends up having some ties to real life. And we won't really be going into that one too much in this this episode, but I do recommend it. Plus, it has Stanko. Yes. As the hottest, seediest uh, groundskeeper? Like, he's a groundskeeper. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of groundskeeper Willie when I think of groundskeeper. I know. <laughs> But, um, and of course, it has the amazing Michele Suave. Um, I don't, is it pronounced Suave or I'm just because he's so suave? I'm saying yeah, it like it that. Yeah, it is Suave. Yeah, oh, Michele Suave. Yeah. Suave. And, he, uh, I mean, they really had like a little tight little team going, I think. The people that worked in the industry or com- were coming into the industry at that point, you saw like these little associations grow and obviously Lamberto also had ties to Dario Argento Suave was like Argento's protege it's like you really get a sense that there was a community there what I love about Macabre is that in um, Roberto Curti's book that he wrote on Italian gothic film well actually he wrote two books it's in the second volume but he tells the story of how it all came about because obviously Barva Lamberto sorry Barva was already in the industry he'd worked with his father Mario he'd worked with people like Joe D'Amato he'd worked with people like Dario Argento but it was Pupi Avati who got Lamberto involved with Macabre and Pupi Avati is just even though so few of his films are available in even in fan subs so his like first two films for example Thomas and the Bewitch 
and Balsamus Lumo de Satana. You can only see them without subtitles. His most famous one, I think, international famous ones are The House with Laughing Windows and Zeda. Zeda being like a really weird take on a zombie film and The House with Laughing Windows being a very, very strange take on a Jano film. It's almost like Clive Barker before Clive Barker. It's got strange mysticism in it. And so it was Pupi Avati who got Lamberto involved in this and Pupi Avati who collaborated on the script. And I think, you know, Pupi Avati has had a really interesting, fascinating take on genre. And I don't want to take away from Lamberto either, but having Pupi Avati involved in this project just makes it all the more better for me because I just absolutely love his work and I really wish more of it was available. And so you just get this wonderful little mixing pot produced by a Medusa distribution, uh, distribu- I can't say it, Distri- dis- distribution, I'll say the English. <laughs> he worked a lot with the Martino brothers. And so it really was like a little sort of cottage industry in a way, even though everyone was independent with people working you know, with with established filmmakers and these established filmmakers really passing the baton on to the next generation. Unfortunately, when it comes to that next generation, you know, the 80s really was the last hurrah for Italian horror. Michele Suave kept going and Lamberto really till like the early 90s and then it, it all really died out. Most of the other directors had gone into television, as had Lamberto did a lot of stuff for television as well. And so it's always like with a sense of sadness when you think about these films, because it was really like they were just starting to get going, really just starting to come into their own, and, and the bottom falls out, the financing goes, the industry goes, you know, because they just couldn't compete with Hollywood the opportunities weren't there that were there in the 60s when Daddy Bava was working, you know, as a huge export market to the driving market, for, exa- for example. You know, by the 80s, the Americans are making their own low-budget horror for home video market. It's, like, totally changed. And the theatrical releases, they're all blockbusters. They're the Indiana Jones, the post-Star Wars stuff. And the Italian industry really, really suffered because of that, and they just lost all financing and so it's really sad when you think about Lamberto that you know had he been able to work as a lot like because his father was able to work for a good four decades as a filmmaker as a cinematographer before that so you know it's easier to say oh well he made a bigger dent on on Italian horror or he was more established or he was there for longer and he influenced this and he influenced that but the opportunities were there for him to do that And the opportunities weren't there by 1980. You know, the fact that this film even got made is just just wonderful, I think. Just absolutely wonderful. Yes. Well, and I think that's always something very important for for people to kind of remember when it comes to sort of, you know, with the arts. Well, I guess with anything in life is that sometimes like we're someone's only as famous as the opportunities given. And I'm so glad you pointed that because I do think that that's an excellent point of like why maybe one of the reasons why Lamberto isn't really as heralded as he should be. And I have to go back though because you mentioned the music and yes. the music in Macabre is so sleazy. It's so good. It's, it's great. <laughs> it's perfect. And it's not too, too, you know, because like saxophone, the saxophone is a very dangerous instrument 
and anything made like from seven, like mid seventies onwards, because if it's too sleazy sax, then it becomes cheesy and kind of pastiche. This is like the right amount of just like perversity. This is the, it's just so like, it, again, it's swampy. It's like a swampy sax. Like this is the kind of music that people have affairs to and then get murdered by like <laughs> or murdered is. too that you know like it's and it's perfect or maybe maybe they're getting murdered then having sex you don't know like it's that kind of like <laughs> level of like of amazing just gothic fuckery um and uh and and it's perfect for jane like just she she's so she's so beautiful and has this kind of offness about her which is perfect and half the time she's writhing and you know moaning fred's name like and the way the film is built up it's perfect for the reveal because you know initially you're just thinking okay she's crazy or maybe he's a ghost you're not quite sure you know she's crazy but it's like does fred still have power and then i mean we got to touch upon the reveal right because it's so good oh we've got to talk about the the reveal you have to talk about the reveal because it's the whole, like I said, I don't think it's like, like the fucking thing is on the cover of the Arrow Blu-ray. So <laughs> There you go. <laughs> but it's still, it doesn't matter how many times you see this movie, the reveal is so like, oh my God. <laughs> I think it's still ambiguous enough though to, you know, it's still ambiguous that you're never really entirely sure by the end of it what actually happened (laughs) so maybe not necessarily a spoiler because it's one of those films that it just really leaves you on the on a what the fuck moment which i love but but the big spoiler is that old jane has got fred's rotting head in the freezer and she's doing stuff with it at night hence all the orgasmic screams (laughs) And I want to point out, this was like at least four or five years before Reanimator's sort of joke about getting head from a head. Yep, absolutely. And you just have to, because you don't actually see what she does with it, thank God. Apart from one scene where she's like snogging the head, which isn't, you know, I mean, it's putrid, this thing. It is fucking grotesque. And she's giving it full tongue. Ugh, it's so gross. And... And she's again like Bernice is or Bernice is just she's giving it her all. Like she is selling being turned on by this disgusting, rotting, severed head of her lover. And it's you know, and it makes you feel even worse for Robert. Like he's a whole man, you know? Like he's not dead. He's not <laughs> he's just a, a severed man. Head. He's a whole but, man. And but Fred gives head, so Fred does something. I mean, when you do see her, she's sort of writhing around with this head that's not doing anything, and you just... It does, without giving spoilers for a film that we're not really discussing, though, it does go back... Some of the elements in the film do go back to Mario Barber's The Whip in the Body, which is an equally ambiguous, strange film about... I don't want to say necrophilia, although it is necrophilia in this, but a, 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 a gothic film that's very, very perverse that has what might be supernatural undertones, which d- examines a woman's sort of 
failing mental health or hysteria, it does have some sort of connection to that. I'm being very careful what I say because I don't want to spoil that film for anyone who might not have seen it. I'm sure most people have. But it's it's just there's some similarities there. But that's not to say that Lamberto was copying what his father did because they're two very, very different films. I just think what I, I love about it is, and you don't necessarily see this aspect in a lot of Lamberto's later films, is Mario, when it came to sex, he was very, very perverse. And The Whip and the Body, which was 1963 is a, a period gothic but it has scenes of s like graphic scenes of s and m in it which was really shocking for the time this was before Belle de jour which was 67 and it was so shocking to american senses that they cut they just cut it to shreds they just didn't know what to do with it and it is it's a deeply misunderstood film because a lot of i've noticed um a lot of critics of the male variety tend to misread it as a more of a male a story of male violence and, and control whereas i see it as one of the first horror films to come out of you know that section of gothic really that were quite graphic and upfront about female desire female sexuality and that was something that was always part of mario bava I think when he people see him as like a sort of non-sexual filmmaker and I've even heard that said on commentary I don't agree with that I think sex was all over his films but it was a very different type of sex it was deeply transgressive very very perverse and he would just put these little perverse elements into his films and I think the 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 apple didn't fall far from the tree when you look at macabre (laughs) and what Lamberto then did to the gothic in 1980 the gothic is supposed to be perverse when we think of formal gothic we think it's polite and it's you know people think of those hammer films for example the classic universals which were not sexually graphic because of censorship at the time you know they couldn't be sexually graphic people tend to think you know the the more tight corseted and graphic that's classic gothic but no if you read gothic fiction especially my favorite gothic book of all time the monk there's fucking necrophilia in it there's devil worship there's there's rape there's incest you know it's it was absolutely packed with perversion i think it really took the the italian filmmakers were the ones that really got it they really got how perverse and, and and Tennessee Williams as well, but he wasn't doing horror, but Tennessee Williams fucking got it as well. <laughs> totally fucking got it. But but Lamberto gets it as well. And obviously he's got more freedom than even Mario had. So he can go even more over the top with it and come up with something as insane as a woman fucking a rotting head, <laughs> which is like <laughs> Well, and and I think the kind of the cool difference too between like how Lamberto approaches this, how I think other filmmakers, especially probably like an American one would, is that there's really, you don't get like a moral judgment vibe towards Jane at all. And I kind of find that refreshing because, you know, I remember when I first watched it, I almost expected it because, you know, 
I think an American film definitely probably would go there. But it's like the only real true villain in this piece is Lucy. It's the yes. eleven. It's the eleven year old. <laughs> It's a- I mean, Jane just wants to fuck, for God's sake. I mean, she's got that dull husband, bless oh. him. He's, Who- he's, he's terribly dull, though. And he's you only so see dull. him for, like, a scene or two scenes or so. And, you know, he's he's obviously... Leslie is the husband. Fernando Pinello is the guy who plays him. But he's, he's more like a cameo because you already see him. And then they split up, and he's quite reasonable with her. You know, he brings Lucy round for contact visits, and, you know, he's he's very polite. And you just think, you can see why she went off with Fred. I mean, the guy is, is dull as dishwater, although I'm not saying that Fred was anything special. I mean, he's just some dude with a moustache. <laughs> I get Roberto that's... Posse, I say. I'm sorry, Roberto Posse played him, but uh, Fred... He's funny, you see Stanko. You see Robert. Yeah, I know, you got st- like, Stanko, who's just like the hot of hotness. He's so beautiful. And he's so sweet. He's totally just like, his character's so smart. I'm just, I kept wanting to shake Jane. Owns his beautiful like, Stop. house. <laughs> he's he's like... got this, yes, he can, he can put together instruments. He can cook. He he can he can do everything and you know and he's got a I'm sorry I would much rather tussle with him than a severed head call me crazy or friend yeah a rotting grotesque severed Ugh. head it's so it's so <laughs> gross and yeah and I love the fact that you like going back real quick it's funny like with with like sort of people's perceptions of perversity and horror is that. Because there's been films where I've seen where me like me and you could talk about it and we're like, oh man, that's really powerful and it's really sexy and you know talk with other women, but yet like a lot of the males kind of miss it because I don't know if it's just the way that like trope brain where it's like if it's a woman she's the damsel in distress therefore she doesn't have any sexual agency kind of thing. Oh, it's to I think it's totally that I think they just don't see outside of the box where if she, I, I can't really talk about why the whip in the body is so transgressive without giving it away and I don't want to do that because we're obviously not covering it but to me you know the like Fred in a way the the guy in it Chris played by Christopher Lee and obviously Christopher Lee has this big presence and we see him as the predator we see him as Dracula we assume he's something Whereas in Italian horror, he'd often play different types. You know, he didn't play the same types that he played in English horror. But he he comes with an assumption that he means something. But if you really look at that, Dalia Lavi, who's the protagonist in that, it's really about her desires, her, you know, her perversions, her agency. And Christopher Lee is, like, really just a prop to her and and it's the same with fred even though fred may or may not be supernatural and we've got the weird weird end which i won't mention um <laughs> it's just, just like but just a very strange thing that happens at the end on on in line with this weird thing that happens at the end of pieces the slasher pieces it's just inexplicable thing but other than that, we're left to just wonder, you know, what it's what's it about? But it all seems to be, it's Jane. Jane is in charge of everything. You know, Jane's setting up the what, you know, she is, is there magic involved? Is there some sort of hoodoo ritual? I mean, what is going on? When you hear her talking to Fred, and you never hear him, obviously, or when Stanko's Robert, 
hears her talking to Brad. Like, it's almost like she's having, and this is how great Bernice Steigers is, because she just, you know, acts completely deluded, maybe, <laughs> you know, <laughs> unless Brad is a ghost, but we don't really know. And that's the, she's just so good in her performance. Because you you don't actually know if she's nuts or not. You know, she acts nuts, but she could be trying to, to protect Ghost Fred. We don't actually know. Although the one thing, I've always wondered where she got the fucking head from. Because she's supposed to have been in hospital. Did she take it in her bag from the car? <laughs> I mean, it gets even more horrific when she starts <laughs> delving into <laughs> I don't. Well, and you think if you're being like committed to a mental institution, I mean, they they check your things. You know, maybe you think they so- didn't. Like, where where does she get it from? If she was in the car, he was beheaded. Mm. Then she was in hospital. Where she got the fucking head from? Like, she must have taken it from the car. <laughs> or she could have dug him up. Either way, it's it's it's, it's so nasty. outrageous. And you often don't think of, of women doing things like that either, do you? No, I mean, it's... Um, what yeah, is it, it's... When you think about it, it's so completely subversive. You know, when you look at Edgar Allan Poe, for example, you know, with his, with his you know, his, his famous quote of, you know, the, the, the dead woman being the most poetic topic in the world he was obsessed with beautiful dead women or women dying and he wrote poems he wrote short stories about it and it became very entrenched in genre the idea of the dead woman being beautiful in death matthew lewis is the lo- matthew lewis is the monk has ne- necrophilia in it and it's the, pretty much the same thing you know this beautiful young virginal dead woman you know, it's something that's so associated with genre is, is that necrophilia is something that men do. But here we have the possibility of a female necrophiliac, which is like, who fucking does that? That never happens. I'm trying to think of another example. Yeah, the only two that are coming to my mind is um, that film, there was Love Me Deadly from 71... And I am really rusty on it, but I believe she was a necrophile. And then, of course, my my personal favorite, other than Macabre, Necromantic 2. Yeah, which is so much later on. Yeah, several. it's about like seven or eight years later after this. But it does also get extra points for having a musical number where the female protagonist sings a song about how much she loves the dead. And it's like, translate to delicious skeletons. <laughs> There's a female necrophiliac in Necromantic as well, isn't it? There is, but she doesn't She's have a musical driver. number. She so. does put a little pipe on the on the corpse, though, as a hard-on. <laughs> Which is, I just, oh, I, I think my brain tries to block that just because it's like, it's just, oh, that's a girl. Don't treat your vagina like that. <laughs> Get a strap on or something. Don't be using it as pipe. but. <laughs> I mean, what if you, I mean, imagine like the tetanus shot you would need if you had like, ah, anyways, but, um, but no, it Jane is like from the outward, like, like this beautiful, very respectable, classy woman. So the idea that somebody, you could see somebody like this, just, you know, and realize that she's, she's making passionate love with a severed head. It just makes it all even more just sort of amazing. Oh, it's, I think it's wonderful. I think it's just such a 
such a confrontation. People have have the usual reaction to laugh at it, but I think it's like a nervous sort of laughter because it's so strange and perverse and weird. It's like what? Like it's like this sort of almost like people can't quite process it. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, so like, they sort I... of laugh about it in in that really embarrassed sort of way and. I think that's the thing I love about it the most is it uses gothic as like a confrontational device. And when if you look at someone like Matthew Lewis, who he was like, you know, a very young man at the time when he wrote that novel in a response to like the Anne Radcliffe flowery gothic romances. He was so sick of the politeness and the flowery language that he set out and at first wrote that book anonymously to write something that would be completely fucking scandalous. And so you get, and you know, when you look at traditional Gothic, you get two traditions. You get the Radcliffian tradition, you get the Lewisite tradition. And Macabre is very much a film in the mould of the Lewisite tradition because it is made to be confrontational. And there really isn't much like it at all. Like you said, you know, there's bits, Reanimator, um, Michele Suave's Della Morte, Della More, maybe. But it really exists in its in its own plane, especially in 1980 in Italy, we had, like, the zombie cycle was going in full flow. So I wouldn't necessarily call Macabre a zombie film, but it does have ghoulish elements. But, yeah, it's so different to what a lot of the other filmmakers would, you know, following Fulci's zombie flesh eaters and just making crazy zombie films. And on the other side, you have Lamberto Bava making this very quiet, in a way, family melodrama about insane people out of control, really. <laughs> you know, Lucy perhaps the most out of control of them all. I mean, God, she is so horrific. She finds, one of my favourite parts is, well, Robert finds uh, Fred's earlobe with an earring on it that must have fallen off during Ugh. whatever they were doing. <laughs> I want to think about it. And he tries to confront Lucy, like, I think your mem's got, you know, Fred's corpse up there. And Lucy gaslights him. As, which is another thing that generally happens to women in Gothic, they get gaslit. Both Lucy and and Jane gaslight Robert in this and tell him he's imagining things. So even Lucy goes along with it and she takes the earlobe and then she cooks her mum and Robert this soup and she puts the fucking earlobe in her mum's soup <laughs> when she's eating it. There's this like rotten piece of ear in it. And you get this really excruciating fucking scene where they're eating dinner. Robert, who's obviously blind, has no clue what is going on with these two at the fucking table and the ear and everything and just the sheer passive aggression they have towards each other, which turns into outright aggression. Um. And he's there more like the woman because being blind or being mute is another gothic thing. But again, generally used with women, it's the maiden who is afflicted or incapacitated in some way, which makes her a, like a less powerful 
Not that women generally have a lot of power in Gothic anyway, but, you know, and, and in this we have Robert in that position because he's not, even though he knows what's going on, you know, he can't see, he can't actually prove it to himself for a long time. And so every time he sort of speaks of his suspicions, Jane or Lucy will be like, no, 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 it's not that. And there's nothing he can do because he can't fucking see. Uh, and he's and he's you know basically as a as opposed to sort of what you would typically see with like a male hero instead of relying on having brawn you know physical strength or access to weapons it's purely his intelligence and observational skills like yeah he's so unheroic like in like that typical mold so unmasculine in a way that it's i mean it's a beautiful performance by molnar He's An so good. beautiful performance. Well, everyone in it gives a beautiful performance. Bernice Steigers, there's Veronica Zinni, and Veronica's brother Carl would go on then to work with Lamberto in Demons. Um, not as shitty as his sister. No. <laughs> I'm really no, he... sad she never did any more films. She's amazing here. No, I, I was too, because it is such a great performance, and she is such a little shitter. Like, you really just want to throttle this kid. <laughs> and um, Carl did play a shitter, uh, an older shitter, Oh, God, no, yes, he did. What am I saying? The fucking, in a wheelchair. He's like See, that's ass- another weird theme, isn't it? <laughs> I know, and he's such an asshole. Like, you're like such a, this, like, perv, handicapped pervert. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. He was like, he's like the, the perverted wheelchair-bound peeping Tom in Delirium. That movie, we won't be talking about it tonight, but we do recommend it. Delirium is completely aptly named. It is delirious, and it's so good. Um, yeah, another weird thing, another weird theme then. <laughs> afflicted people, and then we'll talk about it in a minute, but then he appears in a, another later film is is blind. So Oh yes. So it's like, yeah, what was that about? <laughs> <laughs> but oh yes, no, macabre is so great, and it is like a really great antidote to like um there's because there's always been kind of i think at least in my opinion like a very like conservative sexual approach to with with a lot of horror fans and horror writers because and i think that's one of the reasons another reason why this film tends to get downplayed in fact the first time i ever read about this film the reviewer clearly didn't like it and just i think just the just the whole idea alone of it of this woman you know having a, an erotic moment with the severed head was too much which is understandable but i mean horror is supposed to be too much like it's kind of fascinating that people it's fine to see somebody chop up a bunch of women or chop up a bunch of people in general that's fine but like you know necrophilia is somehow worse it's like well it's all fucking bad <laughs> it's oh, horror. totally and especially when it's a woman doing it Oh yes, well, and it's and you know a, a woman who's not playing by a societal role. Like she clearly loves her kids, but you know a lot of she's a character that would be very easily judged by society, but she's not judged by Lamberto, and which makes it just so fascinating. I think I think it's a really rewarding film, and um and yeah, Stanko is so because he's he's not he wasn't he's not blind in real life, and he really does convincingly play. Uh, a blind man oh he's wonderful he really uh, is wonderful 
He's a such very... a good actor, though. And I think because you have, especially in Macabre, you know, it's just really good, really good, solid acting. Even though certain aspects of it, I'd say, are high camp. High camp in the sense that they're deliberately grotesque. I'm not using camp in, in the way people say camp for something that they think is silly or is beneath them, but in the true spirit of camp as something over-exaggerated and grotesque. I think because the performances, and dubbing aside, the dubbing can get a bit strange at times, are just so convincing, it just... Yeah, I think it really sort of elevates it and makes it slightly more believable. Let's talk about dinner with the vampire next. I was just to say, speaking, speaking, of, <laughs> speaking of uh, high camp, of, of high camp, and for anybody, some people get very, very like sort of panties and a twist about it. Like when we use the word camp, we're using them a with reverence here and and with knowledge. So uh, I think I, I mean I've rejected the word camp in recent years. I think because it tends to get banded around now. In that whole so bad it's good thing, which is I keep fucking saying time and time again, I do not subscribe to that. I don't believe. Oh, goodness. I mean, no. this really has become my mantra that if something <laughs> gives you enjoyment or entertains you or touches you in any form that, that, that is a positive experience, that there's no badness there. So I wish we could just totally scrap that. And I think camp has become a lazy way to describe, you know, films that people think, you know, they want to enjoy, but they're perhaps they're a bit too low budget or exaggerated or stylized, And so they use camp as a way of, of almost putting themselves above the films. Whereas if you look at how the word camp is employed traditionally, it's something, it's like, a, it's like a, an actual art form that is supposed to be confrontational and exaggerated and grotesque, you know. And I have a real appreciation with of camp, like true camp. I just don't think we should be using the word, you know, as a dismissal. And, and it has become a very dismissing, disparaging word in recent years. And, you know, people just using it in this lazy way that, that's not even the way that it's supposed to be employed. So we could ditch doing that and reclaim camp as a form of sublime art. That would be absolutely great. But this yes. one is, I mean, it's, it is camp. And it's a film that's done with so much love for the genre, a parody, a comedy, that's also truly horrific in parts when you look at some of the amazing special effects. Oh yeah, this this film is such a fun ride, and and that kind of ties to the whole thing with camp. Is you know, some of us, yeah, like to me, growing up, camp always to me was like a synonym for for fun, for greatness. If something was campy, it was going to be just like a like the best carnival ride ever. And we're all about reclaiming language here on the show. Because remember, people, words are not offensive, but you know, yeah. that, but shitty <laughs> attitudes are. <laughs> and um, 
Dinner with a Vampire it has such a fascinating to me background because um, it was made, I believe, in 89. And this is part of an Italian cable series that Lamberto created that was a four part series called uh, Brivado Giallo. And, and then instead of like, you know, being episodic as far as being like little like TV episodes, these are like four movies. Uh, and all of all of them have been released separately. There's never been, to my knowledge, like a proper box set of the Bravado Giallo series, so that would be super cool. No, they all came out. Maya DVD, I think, put some of them out. Well, that old Maya DVD were brilliant. They they put out some really good stuff. They did. Um, pretty sure they did Sergio Martino's Scorpions with Two Tails as well, which was originally shot to be for TV, and then became a film but this is what i meant earlier by the fact that the opportunities really weren't there for feature films uh, by the end of the 80s and so i mean lamberto adapted to to television and and some of the other directors did go into television like sergio obviously but sergio was making series like rally and family melodramas he really wasn't doing genre whereas Lamberto was creating things like Bravado Giallo which is just wonderful or four different films in there this one being like outright comedy and and one of my favorites of the series as well the others the graveyard disturbance the ogre and until death and he did another TV series as well, the name of which is evading me, but the episodes of that are really fucking difficult to work. I just can't find many of them. But this one is just like a total... Um, it's just like a total parody of the traditional vampire, which is what I, I love about it. Oh, it it is the kind of like especially for you know any of us who grew up as like monster kids like it is the one the kind of film you want to like just nestle into and it's and especially because it's like a great mix between like gothic like what people kind of envision with gothic horror film but also like eighties horror you know and you have some amazing eighties um, fashion which oh Kat, my god I, the I know fucking... you have to speak upon this. <laughs> Yeah, the age. See, the film starts off with where you've got these these young people. So it's Rita, Monica, and Sasha, and then the guy who is—is he Gianni? The guy. Uh, Am I? I remember my original notes for this. I referred to him as um, Diet Steve Gutenberg. (laughs) Yes, he is. And. That was, you know, the kind of, this is the thing was like, this is the perfect film where, you know, the characters you really love the most are like, are the monsters. Like the protagonists yeah, are just kind of Yeah, the protagonists are just kind of there, which is just so great. But they, they start off, these young people, they've gone for an audition to be in a movie and you see them doing their casting goals. So the one girl... Is like very very serious. I think that's Sasha, and she does a scene from Shakespeare. And then you've got then 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 it turns into a weird MTV music video with a pop song. And then the other girl does this weird eighties like so eighties dancing. 
and they assemble at the end and the fucking fashions man i think it's i think it's sasha she's wearing this panda jumper and it just totally reminded me of in the 80s my my gran got this knitting machine and she inflicted for a good decade like these 80s jumpers with animals on i don't i've never understood what that was about but it was like a huge thing in the 80s knitwear with fucking animals on it and like loud knitwear so this girl is just wearing this thing with this horrible panda on it and i just looked at her i thought that's the sort of thing my gran would have sent me for christmas and then we would have been forced to wear it and it's just so fucking it and i i feel like because then you've got the the vampire's castle jumping ahead a little bit and the people there are weirdly in period dress and and I wonder if Lamberto just went totally over the top with the 80s fashions in the earlier scenes to sort of com- contrast with with the with the costumes of George Hilton and his oh. people because you know the other girl's got this just just obscenely fluorescent pink t-shirt on which <laughs> is like oh it's I don't know what that was about. I used to be into fluorescent stuff in the 80s as well, and I hate it now. I hate it on anything. <laughs> I really hate it. But there was a time I wanted fluorescent clothes, and like ever since then, like fluorescent green ugh, is the most disgusting colour on it. And if I see it on anything, especially a font, it makes me irrationally upset now. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, if... The audition scene is so great because you keep thinking, what are what in the blazes are they auditioning for? Because like nothing, nothing is cohesive. You've got Shakespeare, '80s aerobics. Yeah. it's not even really proper dancing. You've got an '80s style pop song. You've got ballet dancers. Yeah, ballet dancers. What whatever the fuck Johnny is, Steve Gutenberg. Like he does he has these dumb puppets. Yeah, he does a weird puppet show, doesn't he? He's Which horrible. is just like what? <laughs> I really did not like Johnny. I really, I kept, I was like, ooh, I can't wait for you to get what you, what you deserve. Like he's totally that character in a horror movie where you're like, if he dies, I am totally down with that. Like he's so obnoxious, and he's wearing a suit as well. He's doing that eighties thing of someone in their early twenties wearing a fucking suit. You just know Which he's like, wearing... who did that? Ugh. You know Possum he smells like Jack Parr. <laughs> He totally smells like Dracardoir. <laughs> He's, ugh. Anyway, but the castle. Yeah, it's more like a weird, like, junior talent show, isn't it? Now I can <laughs> think about it. <laughs> and and it's, it's beautifully, like, everything Lamberto does. Beautifully shot, fascinating edits. The castle. I was so in love with this castle because it's not your traditional i think if somebody's listening to us and haven't seen it you're probably picturing like a gray sort of bricks like an old medieval style castle whereas this is like almost like it looks like the design i'm not an architecture student by any means but the design in places almost looks like middle eastern to me oh, it's beautiful it's the, so the gorgeous oh it's so and it's very colorful it's not like what you typically think of like a drab dreary cobwebby castle it does have a very more more you know classical sort of crypt area but the main castle is just very vibrant just ornate and um of course our the aforementioned george hilton playing uh i believe it was yurik yeah who's this uh referred to as a famous horror film director uh 
who happens to be, spoiler alert, our vampire. And if George Hilton playing a vampire does not intrigue you, then you need to check your pulse, honey, because you're dead. (laughs) And he's really great as well, because he's he's like a movie star. He's in the film business. And he's so bored with being a vampire that he is elected to get these kids to his house. And he sort of says to them over dinner, um, you know, I'm bored. I've, I've been around for 4,000 years. You know, it's very boring being a vampire. You always have to go to bed before sun sunrise. And I need you to kill me. But if you don't kill me, then I'll kill you and I'll turn you into the undead. And he's got these, like... They're more like ghouls locked up in a dungeon <laughs> in his basement, sort of semi-rotting away. And that is basically the plot. But in addition to that, you've got some very Lamberto Barva things. So this is like two years after, and no, it's a bit later actually than Demons. 88, 89. 89, I think it is. 89 is what I have. So it's a, f- a few yeah. years after Demons, where Demons is like very meta. You know, you've got... I'm going to assume everyone's seen demons, but you've got demons that come out of a film. So you've got a film within a film and it's set in a cinema. And within that cinema, you've got references to other horror films. You've just got, it's like, I think we, we really, we tend to think of horror becoming self-referential and meta in the 90s through people like Wes Craven in in the new nightmare and scream but really when you look back to the 80s and you look back to people like Lambert Obava they were doing it a lot earlier and I really I, I, I seem to be forever saying this but I fucking hate scream I think it's a <laughs> horrible cynical piece of work and it gave birth to that horrible sarcastic cynical postmodern horror that's all done in the style of Chandler from Friends which is another <laughs> 90s entity that I fucking hate yes and it's all winking at the camera because we're cleverer in the film but when you see Lamberto Barva do this a decade before you know he's not winking because he is better than it he like as i said at the start of this episode it's it's the it's in jokes for fact it's like it's like the same way heavy metal fans absolutely love spinal tap which we've obviously covered on house bows because as much as it finds the ridiculousness in heavy metal it's also a film that has a lot of love for heavy metal and so you never feel like they're taking the piss out of you, unlike they do in Scream, which mm. is just, I just fucking hate. But you've yeah. got it in this because they start off with a film. The, the, these kids, they're called to the castle and, they, they, and they're told to watch this film. And in this film, you get a very terrifying looking George Hilton as this sort of Nosferatu type of vampire. And they're. These guys are going into his crypt, so they're filming it. So you've got like a film within a film, a film within a film within a film. <laughs> so that just seems like a very... But you've also got these funny little in-jokes, like the guy, um, and I don't know his name, which is terrible. They, they George has got this little weird little... Uh, 
Henchbacky Renfield. Yes, I actually have this on my note card because I love him so much. I think it's Gills? G-I-L-L-E-S. Oh, Gillis. Gillis. He's amazing. Go on, I'm sorry. Yeah, so so Gillis, he seems to be channeling, when you first meet him, Marty Feldman in Young Frankenstein. And then later on at dinner, the the guys make, they go, oh, where's Marty Feldman gone? So it's like, it's that. It's got his tongue really in its cheek. And and it's being very obvious about its uh, references. But then once it gets your expectations, it then throws them out of the window. Sergio Stivaletti of Demons did the optical effects on this. And you've just got some great makeup, some great effects in it. Great, uh, that house is beautiful. That that when they go into the house, the atmosphere of like the mist and the fog is just beautiful as well. Considering this was made for TV, and you've got a star like George Hilton in it as well, which is really interesting. Yeah, and especially because it doesn't. To me, it doesn't feel like a TV movie, or at least what I what I think of when I think of, of 1980s TV films. And and not to disparage that genre, there there are really excellent TV films out there, obviously. But um, but yeah, there's just such a bigness to it, and there's so many cool little details that make it different. Like we get, we kind of find out that um, Yurik was like became a vampire back in like Mesopotamia, like he's yeah. way older than Dracula. Um, and we we first see him, we see a 1920s film crew break through a crypt to get a real vampire on film. And it's sort of like, it's one of those things where is it a documentary? Is this part of the of the film that he's showing? Oh, it's showing? wonderful. Yeah. It really I, is. It's, it's just so fun. I think also the fact that it's, that it's George Hilton... When people think of George Hilton, obviously they think of George Hilton from the Western, but most predominantly, I think, from the Jallo. Mm-hmm. But he was really good in comedy. Like, he was in Taxi Girl with Edward Schwenick in 1977. <clears throat> he was in that. He was great in that. He was really great in... Uh, there's a Sergio Martino comedy that's really fucking hard to track down called Don't Play With Tigers from 1982 and it's like an anthology so it's different skits and i'm just going to say what happens because it's 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 highly unlikely that many people would have seen this film or be able to get hold of it it's a really rare one so i'm just going to say what happens um but he so in his sketch or his segment they're like about half an hour long Edward Fennick is married to this cheese factory owner, which is like a recurring theme in Sergio's comedies, cheese factory owners. I don't know what that's about. (laughs) His factory's about to go bust, and he meets this Arab who he thinks he can get to invest in the business. But And the Arab, this Arab prince, is played by George Hilton. So he's like, come on out to dinner. And this guy thinks that basically the Arab is after his wife. So he he says to his wife, you know, sleep with him, do whatever, you know, join his harem, just, you know, we need to get this money. And so 
they go to this like very lavish dinner where you've got George Hilton playing it totally straight faced in this fucking Arab get up. And he's got these belly dancers and all this stuff in this barrel. And and the joke is that he's not interested in Edward. She wants the husband. He's a gay Arab prince. Lots of weird gay, anti-gay humour in Italian comedy. But he is so fucking good in that. And he plays it totally deadpan, as he does in Bravado Giallo. Like, he only did a few films in between that, Don't Play With Tigers, and then Bravado Giallo, because his career was sort of slowing down at this point. But people don't generally think of George Hilton as, like, the comedy guy, but he's just so good at it. I think because he doesn't overplay it. And so in Dinner with the Vampire, even though his role is kind of campy, and he does, I mean, he laughs a lot in it, and he takes the piss out of these kids but he's very straight-faced about it. It's almost like he's approaching it like any other role. He's just like, you know, he's not being ridiculous about it. Yeah, he's totally bringing um, some, uh, you know, people say like big dick energy. Yeah. Uh, he's got big Dracula energy. Well, he's gorgeous he, George, isn't he? Apart from when he's the Nosferatu one, uh, then he's not so gorgeous. Well, that's funny because there's one of my favorite, many favorite scenes is at one point there's the the one girl who's really into horror films and it's and she's like the dancer, and we see him like the film he's all gross Nosferatu he's literally got cobwebs, he's shrouded in webs and he's biting his victim which I love the fact that he's a total breast man by the way like yeah you notice that almost anytime he's going to bite a girl he's 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 going for a full cup you know like he's just going for it <laughs> and she's like oh my god he's so he's so cute and it's like, I know <laughs> and uh but then when you see him looking like George Hilton with fangs it's it's yeah I mean he's so debonair he's so fun you can tell he completely reveled in this role and um i mean just watch george hilton just look at the man he's so oh just... he's so good though and I, I i just love george hilton anyway and he always seemed in interviews to be like literally the nicest guy on the face of the earth as well even though he played some horrible characters in jallo films he just seemed like he had a really good sense of humor and you know everyone spoke so highly of him but it's this vampire, he's great. Even when he's being threatening, you know, he brings, like, the big dick energy, as Heaven calls it. <laughs> so he's he's supposed to be he's so old that he's evolved and nothing can kill him. And so the, the one by one, they bring all the tropes out, the garlic. There's a wonderful line in it where, the, where Johnny says to this girl, you know, are you wearing a cross? You know, because they're in Italy. It's like, you know, shrouded in Catholicism. And she's like, no, I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> and, they're, and they're trying the crosses, they're trying the garlic, they're trying the steak, and nothing can kill him because he's evolved to such a degree that he's like none of these things. You know, he's even got a cross of his own, and so he's just, you know, turns up menacingly and they try these things and and he just laughs in their faces and it goes on and on like that <laughs> for the whole film. Which, I, I saw some guy review this, actually, just random internet guys. Like, this film is boring. I expected a lot more from this. And, you know, it wasn't really scary. You know? But it's really not about that. It's just really having fun with classic gothic. Although a lot of horror fans don't 
take to that too well, do they? No. I mean, if you look at the reactions to Roman Polanski's Fearless Vampire Killers, for example, which was like a parody of Hammer, I fucking love that film, but that film makes a lot of horror fans really angry. And I just, I I love Dinner with the Vampire in the same way because the way it just makes fun of those like expectations that we have of the vampire film. And it just promotes this movie star called George Hilton. He's 4,000 years old and <laughs> it just likes to lure young random talent to his house and have fun with them. And it's just, I don't know, I just find it really fun. And I just thought, I read that review and I felt a bit upset. And then I just thought, no, this film wasn't made for you. It's, it's not a film for you, random person. He thought well, it was boring. Yeah, also joke is on him because, I mean, the film is literally called Dinner with a Vampire. If you're expect, you know, it's not Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. <laughs> the, the, the title alone is is very cheeky and fun. And um, I actually remember when I first saw the title years ago, um, I had this, like, imagine, like, I imagine it being, like, my dinner with Andre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but with uh which honestly george hilton as yurik i wouldn't i wouldn't have minded a follow-up to this where it is literally like at my dinner with andre style <laughs> it's just him, him sitting at a table with somebody but um yeah but it is was, pure it's absolutely pure comfort film i think it, it's comfort food it, it is fun it's, it's george a, <laughs> in, in a very different role to the ones that we'd usually see him in Mm-hmm. And he's perfection. Well, he and like you said, actually, he, he was perfect in everything. But yeah, he's so much fun. And I just think sometimes people like don't, you know, you can still love something and have a sense of humor about it. You know, it's like it's it's not I don't think it's healthy in life to take everything 100% serious. Like you, you know, if you see where somebody's coming from, like this, you know, it's like what cat where you were saying like this versus say scream. Where, you know, if somebody's coming from a place of, of love and sort of cheekiness, then I think it's incredibly healthy and rewarding. Just, I'm, you know. I'm sure as well there are people who feel that about Scream. I know a lot of people who like that film and it's like, fair enough, if you found something in it that I didn't, then, you know, all power to you. But with that one, I felt that it was a bit mean-spirited and it was, you know, thought it was a bit too important for its own good and... You know, but then I was a bit older when that came out and probably a bit more cynical myself. So it really, you know, I mean, I don't know how old I was. I must have been into my 20s by then. I just, it just didn't really hit the mark for me. But then I did my sort of early sort of comic and self-reflective horror films were the ones from the 80s, which were kind of all about being ludicrous and joyful and like you said like a carnival so scream to me just seemed like austerity <laughs> by comparison it just really did now well it's i think the thing too is like scream you know and i didn't hate the movie but you know my my problem with scream was that it seemed like a lot of the sort of sm- it seemed a little smuggy and on top of that it seemed kind of like being like the tropes that people that aren't into horror films bring up that people that actually love horror don't as much because you know if you really love the genre you've seen enough films that you know the great films are the ones that sort of either break the tropes create the tropes or burn all the tropes down just burn that shit to the ground and you know where people that don't like horror like oh well the you know 
this happens and that happens. They don't get it. You know, they complain about being sexist or whatever. And, um, you know, and it's funny because I think sometimes horror, you know, horror fandom could definitely be conservative, but like the great masters, uh, the great men and women behind the genre are the ones that, you know, are, are completely fearless. I mean, the fact that Bava was fearless enough to make a comedy, Think about, it. I mean, a horror comedy at that when, you know, his reputation has, I mean, Demons has some black humor in it, certainly, but it's considered a straight up horror movie. And, you know, just, you know, Bava just did, you know, he does what he wants. Like he makes the films he wants. And I love that about him. Like he just, he is so passionate. And oh, I, I, absolutely. I think it is a film, it is a film with a lot of fun in mind. And then it does take those tropes and it, and it, turns them on their heads as well so it's not completely predictable either but it's just a really fun it's just a fun project and i know you know in that state of stress we were in in march that was more than welcomed i think that was what i was wanting you know i wasn't wanting some like really heavy horror film that was scary you know i was wanting something that was a bit more fun yeah and yeah and i guess yeah just like with the whole carnival theme it's kind of like how a really great carnival is is seedy in parts and terrifying in parts but you have like the candy colored lights and you have the fried food and you know can you know cotton candy and just you have all of these sort of um things that should contrast but actually just blend in beautifully together and i definitely think you could say the same for liberta baba's work that's why we love them. <laughs> and talking of love, so let's go on to Demons 5, Mask of Satan from 1989. I'm just going to preface this one with the whole fucking demons thing, which is like a bit of a head fuck. Oh, my God. So <laughs> there are only really, there's only really one official sequel of... It was supposed to be three films... But Lamberto directed Demons in, in 1985 and then he did Demons 2 straight afterwards because Demons was commercially successful. Obviously, the Italians, if they got hold of something that was commercially successful, they would tend to go along with that, you know, and milk the fuck out of it. So then we get all these Demons sequels. So instead of doing the third Demons, that then became Michele Suave's The Church, which was 1989. So this is Demons 3 from 1989, the same year that Mask of Satan was come out. And then going back to the, the, the Jallo TV series, The Ogre, which was also 1989, that was Demons... That was, that was also called Demons 3... I, I'm not going to explain all this. This is ridiculous. <laughs> but this one, so this one comes out as basically the only two demons films that have anything to do with one another are one and two. And then you have all these other demons things in the middle, some of them not Lambert Obava. But then you get to this one, which is kind of like his homage to his dad's Black Sunday called Mask of Satan or Demons 5. And I think spiritually, knocking out, you know, Suave's The Church is a fucking masterpiece, but knocking all those out, this one, at least spiritually, 
is the most connected, like, it's definitely more connected than the ogre to, like, Lamberto's original thing for the for the demons thing. And you have the return of the mask from the 1985, or a variation of it, the Sergio Stivaletti beautiful mask. You have that in this as well. So it's that connection. Whereas a lot of the other films that were put out under the name of demons were actually nothing to do with nothing to do with it. So this is sort of set in a completely different it's it's a different setting, different people. But it, it's at least spiritually connected to that. But it's also a wonderful way for Lamberto to pay homage to we should say really his dad. Mario, along with Ricardo Fredo, along with Ricardo Fredo, co-directed the first Italian Gothic vampire film, Ivan Piri, and then Black Sunday or Mask of Satan was then Daddy Barber's first solo directorial film from 1960, and it was also the film that kick-started that very, very successful strain of Italian Gothic, and so it, you know. All these years later, like how many, like, you know, 30 years later, three, de- three decades later, we have Junior Barber sort of doing his own take on it whilst also bringing in certain aspects of demons. And I just think this one is so fucking underrated. I don't know it- why this has not a decent release. Well, that, that is to me like one of the most perplexing things ever about this film is that it's really, I mean, even if you do like a Google image search, all that really tends to come up. is just um, one of the covers, which is not, you know, it is taken from a character in the film, but it doesn't really reflect the visual power of this film. This is such a beautiful witchy film. And not just because it's about a witch, it has like that feeling of just like an old, like an old witch like it's you know and it's very like heavy metal too without being like heavy you know i mean demons is heavy metal in a different way this is almost to me like when you listen to like merciful fate you know or some you know or king, you know like any king diamond song where he's singing about an old witch he's singing about abigail and it's like to me like mask of satan really captures that right down to like stanko molnar our beloved <laughs> stanko here Oh, plays, wonderful. Oh, yet again, playing a blind man, as you mentioned earlier. But he's a blind, hundreds of years old priest, also like a hexagon. Yeah, he's like, a, like, he's like weirdly immortal or something. Like, what? With, <laughs> uh, with long white hair. Like, he, oh my God. Like, there's, you want, you want to take this character and do a mural of him and put it on the side of a van. Like, it's that metal. It's that just like iconic. And, yeah, and he's like this old like wet like witch hunter who's never died, and it's just he's like a weird of, like Matthew Hopkins type, but not an evil, not an evil Matthew Hopkins in in a way. No, no, that's and that's kind of again another cool sort of sort of twist is that it would be easy to make him kind of like sort of a sub villain, but he's not. He's just sort of a man doing has a say of just a man doing his duty. 
But this definitely has a lot more to do with the original concept for demons than something like Umberto Lenzi's Black Demons, which actually came out, I think, two years after this one and was called Demons 3 as well. <laughs> it's so confusing. Like, uh, yeah, you're, you're a stronger woman than me, Kat. I do you know that gif where it's like the thinking head and it starts with like a little light and then it becomes this beam and there's like these little... Uh, algebra equations start <laughs> flicking. That's how I feel thinking about those fucking sequels. Oh god. Me- meanwhile, I feel like the gif of the dude in scanners like sweating <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is too this is too much math. This is way too much but, math. But you basic <laughs> so you basic because you basically have in demons this mask, this sort of ancient mask that carries this power and you've got these like devil devil people one of them is Michele Suave who sort of you know brings the mask out into society so that 80s people can piss around stick it on their faces and then become (laughs) possessed because that's what we do and I would totally put the mask on as well I mean it's just (laughs) do when you're (laughs) dossing about and in this one this same mask or a variation of it turns up you've got this group of skiers and they fall into this gulf into this hole and one of them Mrs Klaus Kinski Deborah Capriglio who is just fucking amazing uh, Sabina, her name, her character is in there. She's broken her leg, and as they're trying to dig the leg in, the mask is there again. And I think, even though Demons is like, like you said, the heavy metal film is very, very contemporary. It does have those like fantasy notes. It is connected to some weird ancient mythology as well, and it's got a very strange aura to it. And which is why I think I think the Michele Suave films like The Church and the Sect really, you know, are not so out of place in the demons bracket because mm-hmm. they have that weird mythology, that fantasy sort of angle about them as well. So this one is is got the same thing, even though it's supposedly contemporary set. We have this group of young people who are, are lost. And they somehow find themselves in an underground church that's been buried under the snow that then opens up into this village. I mean, it's really magical, I think. And I just, I think I see more of a spiritual connection there to, to, I think this is what Lamberto was very good at. And he actually went in then into doing fantasy TV after the horror stuff. I think he was very, very good at fantasy. And there's so much fantasy in this. This idea that this priest is like lived in this snowy, abandoned village that somehow, I mean, what is this? Is this a parallel dimension? What is this place that they've stepped into? It's like never really explored. Uh, is it just been frozen in time? Like, what the fuck is going on? And he's just in there. And, well, and, and just the the way he paints it like it it really feels like just like almost epic to me sort of um there's such a bigness i think you know to this universe and and which is fascinating with horror because horror tends to kind of focus at times on the claustrophobic and on tight spaces and here you have sort of the sweeping village and and also the fact that we you know the witch that we see 
occasion we just really get just glimpses of and uh you mentioned uh Deborah Capra Cap Capriclio Capriclio, there we go. I can speak Italian. Um <laughs> <laughs> who was married to Klaus at this time. The witch is played by Eva Grimaldi, who was also in along with De- uh Deborah in his uh his only de- directorial film paganini fucking paganini <laughs> which I, I i love that movie uh and i can you imagine being a fly on that wall holy shit <laughs> well the weird thing is about deborah because she was she's actually in one of my favorite tinto brass films which is his adaptation of fanny hill called paprika from 1991 and she is just so wonderful in that She's also in a Sergio Martino uh, thriller, sexy thriller from the 90s called Craving Desire. So when I was researching my book, I tried to track down Deborah Capiglio, see what she's doing now, because she seemed to just vanish. And I tried to find it again for this podcast, but I couldn't find it. I found an an interview in Italian with her. Um, I'm not sure when it's from, but like a fairly recent within the last 20 years say where it was talking about how she just totally given up acting she became like this christian housewife type you know and she's talking about how wholesome she is and shit and i thought that's obviously you know the ptsd from the klaus years finally <laughs> kicking in do you know what i mean the realization that she just, you know, what the fucking... Because I think, did he meet... I think he met her on the set of Paganini or they in a film together. They weren't together long, but that she was so young at the time as well. Bearing in mind, this group of skiers that she's part of are supposed to be late teens. I know. Well, <laughs> I mean, she I was think... probably a little bit older than that. But, you know, how old was fucking Klaus at this point? And, yeah... <laughs> And when you see pictures of them together, uh, I mean, it looks a bit, and keep in mind, I love Kinski, but it looks a little bit like a kidnapping because she looks like she's 18, 19. Kinski's got his crazy ass Paganini hair on top of everything else. So he's got this like dyed dark hair and just, yeah, it looks, it looks wrong. Do you know what, I've but, never seen Paganini. Oh, I love it. It's very dreamy. It's become become like so legendary in my head, especially the My Best Fiend documentary where Herzog was saying on, I think it was Fitz Corral. No, was it? No. It was Cobra Verde. Cobra Verde. Yeah. That he's turning up and he's like, I am Paganini. And they couldn't get any fucking sense out of him. Um, it's become such a legendary thing in my head that I'm almost scared to watch it in case it's not, it's just not as mad and as amazing as I've like built it up. <laughs> I and think so you'll love it. I've I've always like avoided watching it just in case. No, it's so, I've worried about that too, because I had heard about it for years and then I finally got to see it and no, it does not disappoint. And, and it has this great, like sort of, um, the whole thing feels a bit like a fever dream. It's like a biography or a biographical film that's told as from like almost inside the character. Cause most biopics, you know, are sort of like the birth, 
the life, the death, you know, it's like sort of like a term paper kind of thing where it's like Kinski approaches Payani as if like being nestled inside the character's head and just how he viewed things. And it's, it's very fascinating. Um, and it uses natural light. Like every, like there's no artificial lighting used. Like if there's lots of candlelight, lots of daylight. Um, so everything kind of has that sort of haze to it. Um, I, I I love it. I think it's... Oh, um, but before we finish up on Deborah, I'm, I think I said she was in Craving Desire and it's not. It's the smile of the fox. <laughs> Either way, I want to see uh, it. Because you, you said... Oh, you said, she's so great. She's Deborah like a, and Martino. Come on, I need this Yeah, she's like a sort of weird femme fatale type in it. She's a very, very charismatic actress, though. And she she is basically like the central character in Demons 5. She the whole film really pivots on her. You do get this one scene that is an outright homage to Black Sunday, where the witch is brought out by this witch hunter who's obviously Stanko Molnar. And she has this mask hammered to her face. And it's Barbara Steele, obviously, in the, the original. And so they kind of recreate that. But instead of being set fire to, so the, like something goes wrong, the fire the, the fire goes out. And so it's like supposed to be hundreds of years later and she's haunting this priest and she's trying to come back from the dead, which Black Sunday is about demonic possession in a way as well. But here, Lamberto like goes all on out. And in a way, this film really reminds me of the American film, Night of the Demons, where you have de demonic possession in that that's sort of passed through kissing or close contact, and you have this group of teenagers in that who assemble in this house for a Halloween party, and then they become possessed. I think it's Night of the Demons 87, so it was like, I think it was 87, it was before this, but it kind of reminds me of that because one by one all of these skier kids go fucking nuts. And, and then they for about an hour, they're, like, possessed, but not in the 1985 demon's way. No, they're, they're, they're like, in this orgiastic fucking frenzy, running around, screaming, uh, you know, sweating profusely, stripping off. <laughs> it's just utterly nuts the whole time. And they, and they start, you get the first, they meet up with Stanko, sort of don't realise that he's been there for all these years. And you get the first sense that, you know, the shit's about to hit the fan when this group, apart from one of them, David, he's the nice boy, uh, they, they watch Paul Stanko fall down the stairs when he misses his footing and they laugh and that's when you start to first of all you start you think why are they being assholes like why are they doing this but then when they start skipping around and stripping their clothes off then you think oh yeah they've they've been <laughs> they've been possessed by something which is slightly different to the the other demons because in that it's like full-on you know, you get a few moments of demon faces, but it's a totally different approach other than that. No, I mean, they're almost like sort of like feral, like, I don't, they don't physically look like pigs, but they're almost just like very piggish, very yeah. just, 
and um i one thing i had mentioned uh to cat before we recorded if for some reason this made me think of this old vhs board game called nightmare uh which i think it was also called atmosphere in other con- in other countries but um like this is an era it's crazy thing about board games having a vhs tape right like it's, it's so cool and such a niche thing but with nightmare each version of the game like there were four different versions had a different host and they're all French. And so if you've ever wanted to be like yelled at and insulted by a French monster, <laughs> this game is for you. And, um, but they had one character, I believe in the third version that is Anne de Chautrain, who's the witch. And you, uh, she actually has one of my favorite lines and this line would be perfect in mask of Satan is you would look good with the rotten apple in your, in your fat mouth. It's <laughs> <laughs> so it's so good and then you have other characters like the the gatekeeper who yells at you in his amazing accent and calls you a maggot you maggots like that and uh baron samady who is this is probably probably problematic i hate that word but now because it's a white a white frenchman with a multicolored looking fro Oh God! And he says things <laughs> oh, like, "He's like, can you dig it, babe?" But oh, he says it God. like that, like he's Maurice Chevalier. But he's trying to sound like it's not. It's not right. And the fourth and final one was Countess Bathory, who you know, throughout the game, like your host becomes more and more sort of ghoulish looking. And Countess Bathory, by the end of it, turns into a bat creature with like a metal fang mask. Good. It's crazy. I've read, I'm so sad. I've this is the first I'm ever hearing of this. I didn't know about it till years after it existed. So do not do not. Sounds feel bad. incredible. It's. I just love the idea of being yelled at by French monsters. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, but the witch one's the best, and she her energy made me think of this. Just you know, just. But this like, does have this film does have this weird sort of adventure game energy, doesn't it? This weird. Like very very eighties fantasy adventure energy about it. In the, I mean, the story is very very simple compared to Black Sunday, where you just have uh, Deborah Cap- Capriglia is uh, possessed by this witch who's called Annie Bass. Annie Bass. I keep chanting this in this orgiastic fashion, which is an anagram of sabina which is a human name and it's basically just her trying to fuck david the whole time but there's one scene that i really love in it that um i'm not quite sure why she has to keep trying to fuck him but there's obviously something to do with the ritual that she has to because he's a virgin so he admits to her and she's like oh i'm a bit like so a lot of the time she's trying to be nice and really she's a demon but there's a wonderful scene in it where David gets raped by her. Like he starts to have sex with Sabina and then she turns into this fucking hag, with a big hag face. And, and she's going up and down on top of him and going, I know you like it. And I just fucking love that scene. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, it's right just down so to like good. her having shriveled breasts. Like oh, yeah. Turns very husky, like a husk. And uh, uh, there is a, a this is a, such a small moment in this film. But one of my favorite parts is at one point, um, his friends are all acting normal again, or so we think. 
and they set him up like, oh, check on Sabina. And then like, but now Kelly Suave, which I love Kelly Suave so much. He does this little wink at him. Like, it's totally like, yeah, bro, go get that. Go tap that, you know? <laughs> it's such a little lascivious wink. And it's, yeah, because the David character in this, he gets gaslit all the way through because his friends, like, they're either writhing around openly possessed but there are several moments when they go back to what looks like themselves and they're just kind of like no you just had a a dream you know there's nothing going on and this poor guy Stanko Molnar who who tries to fight against them so he actually gets three of them puts them in stocks which I think is wonderful and force feeds them ice for some reason well they cackle at him they actually kill him, but there's there's a, a scene before that where they're, they're starting to erupt into demonic possession and one girl asks for confession. So he, he does his confession box and she obviously starts stripping off and d- dirty talking to him and, you know, he's in this, which is weird because he's blind, so I didn't really see the point in that. But she's saying all this, you know, you want me and all this. And then they all get around the confessional, which he's trapped in, and hold hands in this sort of naked orgy of profane whatever they're doing. And I just love that scene. They're going round and round in a circle with Paul Stanko in it, you know. Oh, I'm so tortured by these naked demon women. And they <laughs> I mean, the energy in this film is just fucking nuts. It's just so nuts. Yes. Well, it's it's like, remember, you had the best review ever of The Witch because you said they weren't living deliciously enough. No, they weren't living deliciously enough in The Witch, in The Vivitch. The Vivitch. But yet, The Mask of Satan is all delicious. There's some totally living deliciously going on in this film. And doesn't one of the girls eat Stanko's birds? Like he has a pet bird. Am I remembering that right? It's been Yeah, I think they she, I think they do. It's I mean it's they're fun. just they're just totally, you know, they go from sort of provincial skiers, you know, to these raging sex fueled I mean, they just see their main thing seems to be rather than kill people to fuck people. Uh, That seems to be their main thing that they do. And the only thing I couldn't work out is why David isn't affected by them. Or is it because he's pure? I don't know. He he seems completely unaffected by whatever this force is that was controlled by this witch, Anibas. But... You know, they seem, he seems completely, like, unwavered by it, like. So they basically just fuck with his head the entire time and then his little blind priest helper goes and he has to put up with these, just these fucking insane crazy people in this insane snowy village, fantasy village. <laughs> <laughs> and then I read, you know, reviews of it going, oh, you know, this is it. And it's just like, oh fuck off. Honestly. Yes. We can't we can't have good things because people (laughs) little complainers, little little just, you know, I I don't understand. It's like being handed uh like this exquisite five course meal made from scratch, but you know, 
you got, you know, Sad Sack Joe over there wanting some Taco Bell or some I, bullshit like that. I honestly don't understand why this one hasn't, you know, I I love Demons 2, actually, which is like the continuation of the first one. I do love that. But I really just, I absolutely love that whole pocket of Italian fantasy horror. And I put Fulci, some of Fulci's films into that as well. And we mentioned Zayda earlier on. And the Suave films like The Church and the Sect. Uh, they they were still gothic films, but they went somewhere completely weird. And it was just exclusively Italian. Sergio Martino's The Scorpion with Two Tails was another one. And just really odd, not even flat out satanic, because they bring in extra levels of mythology and stuff. And it was something that just seemed to be exclusive to that decade, to that place. And so even though this is like one of the later ones, I, I really honestly think people should give this one a go or another go if they've previously written it off. Because it is, I mean, if you like Night of the Demons, it's, it's more or less the same thing, apart from it's got this wonderful priest in it. It's got a flashback to a woman having her face hammered off with a mask, a spiked mask. It's got Deborah Capriglio's tits in it a lot. I mean, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, and, and it's unlike, it's in some ways, I mean, because I totally see the Night of the Demons comparison, but um, the, the, the key difference too is that you never really see the modern world at all in this film. Like, I mean, the yeah. skiers are obviously from the modern world, but we're introduced to them while they're already, you know, skiing and sort of in this isolated, snowy landscape. And I really, that's something I love too, because it's, it's, you know, you're already just being put kind of out of what you expect as a modern yeah, viewer. It, it's such a strange setting. It's something that doesn't really, I know like Suave liked sort of portals and weird mythology and stuff like that. But this seems to just take place in a completely alien, uh, when they find this church underground, I think that part's absolutely wonderful because, mm -hmm. you know, the, the ice starts to crack and then they're like suddenly in this church and then they're in this village and it's like where the fuck are they like if they slipped into and it's never really explained and I think that's one of the things I really love about the imagination in that 80s like even in things like the zombie the genres the Italians would really go on out there with more fantastical themes and of course, of course, there's some really great effects in this as well. The witch makeup is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And there's another part in it, which is just where you've got, where they where they trap the priest, which is like really, really quite gory, which is wonderful as well. But I just think if you're into that sort of thing, it's a, it's a great example. And I'd like to see more of a reappraisal of this one. I, I, I skimmed through, like, so I was trying to find someone else who liked it as much as, as we did. And I found, like, a few articles that were kind of like, oh, you can skip this one and you can skip that one. And it's just like, oh, you know, uh, just not appreciating the majesty here, folks. I know. Well, and really, this this film, and I mean, there's other Baba titles, I think we could say the same, but this one especially really needs a good proper release i think part of the problems i feel like if this film got a, a bigger release it would it could find more of an audience because it, it is really hard to find and it just i don't even know if it was ever like officially released in the u.s 
to be honest, I'd have to check uh, check my old notes again on that. But it's it's really undeservedly underlooked at and underrated. And I would love, I too would love to see it get, you know, a nice DVD, Blu-ray release, a remaster. You know, Lamberto Bava in general deserves that kind of respect and treatment. He's a he's an auteur on his own terms, and you know, bless him for that. The man really, you know, people should should say his name with as much reverence as they do some of the other uh, big dogs we have mentioned. Absolutely. I think that brings us to the end of the episode then and our wonderful little Halloween ride. And yeah. Yeah, and all the Lamberto energy. And it's I'm great it's great that we saved this to Halloween in a way and didn't do it earlier in the year. Cause I just felt just right to go back to them again and just, you know, really soak in that atmosphere and stuff. Although we're gonna uh, have to top this every fucking year now. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we are we are more than game, because we are the hell spells and we hope everybody car- carve a pumpkin, um, have sex with a severed head. Maybe not. Don't do that. Um, or a demon. A, or a demon. Um, you know, or ma- glory in the majesty that is Stanko Molnar. <laughs> and uh, and just, yes, they're on, they're on a Liberna Bava movie. And uh, you know what? Even if you're listening to this after Halloween, there is never a wrong time to enjoy great cinema and great filmmaking.